0: Well, if you'd open up your Bibles back to uh, 2 Samuel. If you're new with us, you should know that we preach expositionally, so we just work our way through the texts, uh, one text after another. This isn't a text that I just picked out as a one-off for a summer talk. Um, Two things I'd like to say before I start. First of all, we're going to be focusing on the first half of the story because I think the second half uh, slides into chapter 14 a little more, which we'll look at last week and secondly obviously this is a heavy text and uh that's just the kind of way it it is there's no uh there's not a lot of place for uh puppy stories and illustrations as i preach today to lighten it up it just is heavy stuff uh but it is god's word now most of us have uh heard the phrase a chip off the old block a person may look at uh, one of our children and say they certainly are a chip off the old block and we know what they mean maybe they look uh, a lot like us have the same smile the same hair maybe they act a lot like us have the same sense of humor or peppy personality or same athletic competitiveness So uh, when it is said to us, there can be a sense of pride and joy. They are like me. But it only uh, takes a little experience in parenting and uh, just a little bit of contemplation for this to become a terrifying thought. My kids are just like me. Because we realize that we don't just pass on certain genetic traits of physique or disposition or personality but we pass on character don't we our kids often act just like us the good and the bad my son Josiah is a great example of that in our family when he was a little guy he just followed me around when he was I can remember when he was about four he did everything I did he just imitated me and uh He uh, loved to work with me. I was always remodeling the house, and and, uh, one day I was sanding with some sandpaper, and I had a scraper, and I was working, and I noticed out of the side of my eye, he's up against the wall, he's got a piece of paper that he grabbed, and he's rubbing the wall, and he's got a little piece of wood that he's scraping the wall with, and and I thought, oh, that's cute. And then at some point, that little piece of wood that he was holding, he threw it down, and he started mumbling at it. And my wife just kind of glanced across at me. She knew that he was imitating my losing it at my tools when things don't go right. This is a very scary reality. Our children are not only affected by our genetics, but often grow up to imitate our fable, our foibles and faults and habits and even the worst of our sins. They are in a sense, custom made in our image. And this is the story that we have before us this morning. What we see here in chapter 13 is that David's sons are just like him, even the worst of him. If you remember from the last two weeks, God's chosen king, the man who was to lead his people in righteousness and justice, fell headlong into sin, into adultery and murder And although being called out by the prophet Nathan and dramatically repenting and finding restoration, this week we see it all over again. We see the consequences of his sin come to his children. One in sexual sin, one in murder, like father, like sons. And we will see that The author will paint this for us as it pains to show us the similarities in their behavior, to demonstrate the pattern of David's sinful behavior passed on and actually exacerbated and and, and magnified in his sons. Sadly, they surpass the depravity of their father. And I know know these stories are hard to read, much less to stop and, and dwell on, some of the worst stuff in the Bible, but God puts it here for a reason. 2 Timothy 3 tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. And the question is, what is the profit here for us in this text? And I wanna say, what we're supposed to take from this text is hate. I think there's one main lesson for us to learn from these stories, and that is hate. God wants us to come away from these stories full of hate for sin. Last week, we got a sneak peek at sin in the midst of God's grace, and this week is just a full, all-out, hard look at the nature of sin. The Bible is, is raw and real, and it shows us the reality of sin because things haven't changed This terrible stuff that we see in this text is all around us today and in us today. And what God wants us to hate it, to be repulsed, to have a guttural response where we are sickened by it and want nothing to do with it, hate. So he lays these stories out in all their high definition ugliness. And the first thing that I want us to see about sin here that we will hate it is the perversion of sin. Look at verse 1 of our text. It says, Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. Amnon loves his sister that's about the only verse in this text that's kind of good at least it seems that way at the start he loves his sister his half-sister actually Absalom and Tamar shared the same mother but Amnon was from one of David's other wives so this half-brother loves his sister and at this at this point like I said on the surface this is good Brothers should love their sisters. God designed the family with with the blessings of of brotherly and sisterly love. They're to care for each other, to protect and, and look after each other. Brothers are to protect their sisters. Sisters are to care for their brothers and there's this familiar affection and and bonding that brings security and and stability to our lives. Tamar actually demonstrates this love properly and beautifully when she rushes to take care of her supposedly sick brother, dropping everything to go and bake for him and take care of him because she loves him. Many of us know the blessings of family and sibling love. We have siblings that, that take care of us that know us inside and out, and they've got our back no matter what, and it's one of the greatest blessings in our lives. They love us. But this good thing, this love here, right, is quickly twisted. It's perverted. We see in verse two, and Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Amnon's brotherly affection has been twisted into lust. He has taken his sensual desires, his sexual energy, which is another gift from God for the purpose of marriage and intimacy and bonding with our spouse. And he's taken that and he's melded it into his brotherly affection and called it love. And it's just sick and perverse and evil and we all know it immediately when we sense where this is going we have a sense of revulsion and disgust and it's not just a culturally imparted response as creations of god we know this is wrong and twisted it's a timeless revulsion The secular world today, as much as as people want to say that morals are just, you know, relative and cultural, this idea is just implanted to us. No, we know it. I don't know if you remember the movie Gladiator, but if you remember Joaquin Phoenix plays Commodus, the son of Marcus Aurelius, and in the movie he has a thing for his sister, and he keeps whispering in his ear, in her ear, Everybody is grossed out and the crowd cheers when Russell Crowe kills him. Amnon knows, knows this sin, he knows it's twisted. The reason he's so haggard every morning and, and sleepless is not just because of his sensual obsession, but it's his conscience. He knows the law, he knows it's wrong, He knows the consequences, but he's in the grip of his desire and lust. This is the perversion of sin. It takes something good from God, brotherly love, and sexual desire, and it twists it into evil. And the twisted relational perversion in this story isn't just in this relationship. Think about Jonadab, his friend. Friendship is supposed to be a wonderful gift from God, a a comrade to help you in life with sound advice and accountability so you don't stray into evil and destruction. But Jonadab uses his counsel to facilitate this evil, and to facilitate his friend's demise. A real, real friend would have advised him along the lines of, of Proverbs, Proverbs 5:20. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman, and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his past. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he's held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. That's what Jonadab should have been saying. That's the counsel of a friend. But instead, he helps his friend in his evil plot. And he brings him to his demise. Helps him right off a cliff. It's twisted and it's perverse. And I have to say, as we read this story and we read about these relationships, I think our temptation is, is to kind to of separate ourselves. You say, yeah, yeah, I, you know, I sin, but you know, it's not like this. No, this is, this is terrible. No, what we need to realize is, realize is this is the nature of all sin. It's, he shows us this horrific example but this is to help us see the nature of all sin. Do you see the, do you see the Garden of Eden parables uh, parallels in this story? The Garden of Eden, where, where sin originated and came to all of us. In Genesis 3, God made everything good and gave it to Adam and Eve. But there is one thing that they're not to partake of, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. It's only for God. He's to be the deciders of good and evil, but they want to take it. And there's a friend there, isn't there? A crafty friend who starts to explain to them that they can take it and how they can get it. And just like Amnon, it becomes their obsession. If you remember, the temptation is described very much in terms of, of a sensual desire. Genesis 3:6. so the woman said, saw the tree that it was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And she took the fruit and ate. She gave to her husband and he ate. They saw it, they desired it they took it, just like David with Bathsheba. It says in the text that he saw her and that he took her. Amnon sees her beauty; he desires her, and he takes her. And in verse eleven of our text, the terms are pretty stark. But when she brought was brought near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, "Come, lie with me, my sister." took her what a terrifying moment for Tamar the sudden realization that your brother who you've come to serve has actually baited you into a trap and you know what's coming it's sick and perverse and it's the nature of all sin we take something that God made for good and blessing and twist it for our selfish desires into evil. We take God's wonderful creation, which is meant to reflect his glory, whether that's the material things of this world or the glories of nature or the passion of sensual desire, and we twist them into our own selfish desires. Romans 3.28 says, So God gives us over to our debased minds to do what ought not to be done and it brings destruction and death. Which brings me to the the second thing that we see here about sin that ought to make us hate it all the more, and that is the misery of sin. We should hate it for its perversion, but we should hate it even more because of the misery and damage that it brings. Not only does the Bible make it clear that sin ultimately brings death and hell because our God is holy, and cannot even look on sin. Thus, when we die, we are separated from him forever. That's the final destination of sin, but more than that, this text reminds us that it brings misery all the way along to our lives. This is what our culture loves to deny and lie about. We, we promote this idea that sin is, is really no big deal. It's just a, a bit of naughtiness and no consequence adult fun. This is why Las Vegas Sin City is set up like an adult Disneyland with rides and miniature Eiffel Towers and water slides and family entertainment all mixed in with total debauchery. Because it's all just harmless fun. We especially think this way in relationship to sexual sin because we say it, it you know, it doesn't really hurt anybody. It feels good. Just indulge as you want. But it, it causes the worst of misery. Tamar tries to warn her brother of this. In verse 12, she says, She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me. For such a thing is not done in Israel do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. She says, this is going to destroy both of us. It will ruin our lives and reputations. And she is right. We see initially that it destroys her in the ancient middle east culture even though she this was not her doing she would become a shamed, discarded woman, looked at looked at as used and damaged goods. And thus when the deed is done, she rips her sleeves from her robe that represent her status as a virgin daughter of the king look at what it says in verse 19. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she said, and she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to, to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. The word desolate there in the Hebrew is laid waste. But almost poetically Amnon doesn't fare much better from the moment he took her. The text tells us that his lust turned to loathing. Verse 15 Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her see what do you think amnon imagined was going to happen when he ensnared her in his little trap they would have this moment of passion and all his carnal desires would be fulfilled and she might even fall in love with him and they would be secret lovers satiated in their pleasure Now, that is the lie of lust, isn't it? That's why we like to call lust love in our self-deception. I want to say to you young people that when that romantic friend says, I love you in a moment of passion because they want you, it's not love. They've used the wrong L word. And if you give in from second one, it's emotionally and relationally destructive. Amnon moves immediately from lustful, his lustful love obsession to absolute hate for her. See, I imagine that uh, the crushing consequences of his sin in that moment were suddenly on him. His reputation destroyed, his status lost, his very life now in jeopardy. I think he knew in that moment that he had just signed his death warrant. He knew his older brother Absalom. He knew what was going to happen. It would take two years, but he was as good as dead. And he couldn't see all this before in in, in his lust-filled testosterone fog, but he can see it all clearly now, and he can't take it. So he projects all his guilt and his shame onto her. It's your fault. He hates her. He makes her go away. That's the nature of sin. It always brings relational destruction and misery. Look at Adam and Eve again. It's just the garden again. The moment they gave in to temptation, guilt, and shame, and they hid from each other, and they covered up, and they blamed each other. She made me do it. Their intimacy was gone, and it eventually led to one of their sons murdering the other. Sound familiar? There is no such thing as casual no consequence sin, especially sexual sin, because it's the most relational. It always brings misery and damage. Young men, if you think dabbling in porn is no big deal, like our culture says, it's just a little harmless fun, think again, it will have severe relational consequences in your life, it will bring nothing but misery. Young people, if you think that messing around with your boyfriend or girlfriend is no big deal because you love each other, think again. You're actually causing immense damage. You're heaping up misery for your life. Married couples, your fidelity matters. Don't buy into the twisted perversions of our culture that treat such sin as casual. What happens in Vegas never stays in Vegas. It reaches into every part of your life, your marriage, your children's lives. It even reaches into the next generation reaching havoc. Just look at David's life. One of the saddest and most ironic moments in this story is when poor Tamar in a desperate attempt to dissuade Amnon from his horrific sin says in verse 12, "She ain't, no brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. No, the problem is, is that such a thing had just been done by his father, the king. She's just part of the ongoing damage, like father, like son. Which brings me to the final horrific element of sin exhibited here that should fuel our hate for it. And that is the degradation of sin. Sin is perverse, bringing misery, and ultimately it brings complete breakdown. Breaks down people. Breaks down societies. Think of David and the degradation of his sin. This amazing righteous, valiant king, who fought off the Ammonites, rescued back the wives and children of his men. He faced down a nine foot giant who was mocking the people of God and cut off his head. He patiently endured the persecution of Saul because Saul was the Lord's anointed. So in godliness, he would not touch him. He acted with justice and mercy towards his enemies. He brought peace and stability to his people. He was a man after God's heart. But then he fell into adultery and then murder. And now look at him. Did you notice him in this chapter? Do you notice his presence in this chapter? It is faltering and weak. He seems to have no power to curb the wickedness of his sons. He reminds me of Eli and his sons. He seems to indulge their sin and even facilitate it. He's used by Amnon in his ploy to lure Tamar. David was the one who commanded her to go and and help her brother. Why couldn't he see Amnon's filthy obsession? Jonadab could see it. Absalom could see it. Was he ignoring it? And then in verse 21, we're, we're told that David is very angry when he found out what Amnon did. It says he's furious. But what does he do? What does David do in verse 21? If you looked down at it, David does nothing. He's angry and he does Nothing. And then it tells us that two years pass. It lets us know he did nothing. He's the king who's supposed to enforce justice and bring restitution. He is her father. And he does nothing. And of course, his inaction fuels the fire for Absalom's revenge on his brother, which David again does nothing about. Again, he's sucked in and he's manipulated to be used in it and then does nothing about it. You see, the hypocrisy of his sin seems to have stolen his backbone. How can he stand up to those who are just mirroring his own shame? To those he has damaged by his own sin. It's no excuse. He should have stood stood up and did something, but it is what happens with sin. It erodes us in our core. It takes away our spiritual strength. David will say this in Psalm 32 when he reflects back on this time, that his strength was dried up like the heat of summer, that his bones were wasted away. So he has nothing to help his own children. We need to think about that as parents. You want to love your children? You want to protect your children? You want to be strong for them? Hate sin. In your own life flee from it pursue holiness it's so true isn't it you ever tried to confront one of your own children or even your spouse when you know they know the hypocrisy in your life But this, uh, this spiritual degradation, this spiral down is not just in David's life. Look at his sons. Look at their sin. As much as they are a chip off the old block, the truth is they're not the same as David. They are worse. You can't miss the, how, how qualitatively more evil his sons are. Than he. How things have gotten even worse. While David's sin with Bathsheba was clearly a manipulative abuse of power and it ended in an adulterous affair, Amnon's sin is all out incestuous, violent rape. And the, the text doesn't shy from the violence, it says that he took hold of her wrist. In the Hebrew, it doesn't say he lay with her, it says he lay her. He violated her. And then he threw her out like a piece of trash. And locked the door. And the revenge that ensues from his brother Absalom is nothing short of premeditated, cold-blooded, mob-style murder. The degradation of sin It's just spiraling, spiraling down from generation to generation in this sickening freefall. That's the way it always ends. Read Genesis again. Starts with Adam and Eve. Goes to Cain and Abel in murder. And you only get about five chapters on and it spiraled down through all the generations until in the days of Noah, every intention of the thoughts of man's heart is evil continually. My friend, 2 Timothy 3, as we read earlier, says all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And this disturbing text is no exception. This story is recorded in all its horrific detail to make us take a hard look at the perversion and the misery and the degradation of sin, so we will hate it we won't take it lightly like our culture does so we will flee from it so we will pursue righteousness but 2nd Timothy 3 also tells us that the scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation through Jesus Christ and I want to end on that yes this text is profitable for our holiness But how does it make us wise for salvation in Jesus? Because on its own, it's pretty hopeless. The best of human leadership, David, is flawed in his sin, and it's passed down to his son, and it only gets worse. What hope is there? Well, as we read on in our scriptures, our eyes are cast forward, aren't they? to the ultimate one in the line of David the ultimate divine King who was also just like his father Yahweh God himself he's not plagued with the sins of a human father but rather he expresses the radiance of his heavenly father and he brings a kingdom Where there is no corruption, but rather cleansing and forgiveness and life for the worst of sinners, even the Amnons of this world. Praise God for His Son, our King and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for being real with us, for showing us the truth that we don't even want to look at, the truth about ourselves and about our own sin and what it does. Help us by your spirit, Lord, to fight against sin, to flee from sin, as we depend on your son. And thank you that we have the hope of salvation that we've been washed clean through your Son, who is just like you. Pray these things in his name. Amen.